The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. All right, let's go ahead and start. Looks like everybody's in who's coming. Um, this is the fourth or fifth week, something like that, that we've looked at church polity. I, I think we probably finish it tonight and maybe go on to some other things next week, God willing. Um, we went a little bit out of order last week to deal, uh, deal with um, the issue of women in church leadership. So I'm going to get back to the order um, of the things that we were uh, doing and uh, begin by looking at deacons. Um, basically, polity is church government, the way by which the church is led by human beings. Uh, we believe that the church is Christ. He's the only one that shed his blood for it. There's not one of us that can match his level of commitment to the church. Um, and he is the only one who's been here for the entire history of this church. So uh, he alone knows all uh, that's happened in the uh, 160 plus years of history in this church. This is his church. He bought it with his blood. But yet he delegates um, authority to created beings. Uh, and he does that even within his church. He gives it to some to be leaders in the church, and that's what we've been looking at. Uh, we've already talked about the uh, definition of church officers right on the first page. A church officer is someone who has been publicly recognized as having the right and responsibility to perform certain functions for the benefit of the whole church. We've talked about the role of the apostle, uh, which we consider to have been fulfilled in that apostolic age. We don't believe that there are any apostles today because the requirement was that this person had to see the risen Christ and had to be specially commissioned by Christ to be an apostle. And there's no one on earth that meets those criteria now. We also talked for a, a long time about elders, uh, pastors, overseers, bishops. These are all different names, in my opinion, for the same office. I think there are two offices in the church, biblically. Uh, one of them is this office of elder and the other is the one we're going to start talking about tonight and that is the office of deacon. Uh, we are also going to discuss how these church officers are selected, and that's going to be most of our time tonight. There are different approaches that uh, different polities or different governments take uh, for selecting their church officers. Uh, we're going to talk about that tonight. So let's begin with the issue of a deacon. What is a deacon? Now, the definition of the word is this person is literally some kind of a table waiter or a servant, somebody who just performed a menial task. Uh, for example, this word is used in John chapter 2, verse 9. Uh, and this is the uh, changing of the water into wine. Uh, it says there, the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where, where it had come from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. So these are just servants, hired people who are helping at the wedding banquet. And it's the exact same Greek word. So that's what it is. It's just uh, basically a servant. Uh, clearly, however, in other places, especially in the pastoral epistles, it's used for some kind of functional office in the church. A very good example of that would be in Philippians 1.1 where it says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi together with the overseers or elders and deacons. So those are the two offices, and that's a good reason why it is we think that there are two offices uh, in the church, right there in Philippians 1.1. 1, 1. Uh, we have a, de a description of what kind of people deacons should be in 1 Timothy 3.8-12. through 12. There it says, deacons likewise are to be men worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. And they must first be tested. And then if there's nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. Uh, in the same way, their wives, and we'll talk about that in a minute, are to be women worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be the husband of but one wife and must manage his uh, children and his household well. Okay, so those are the qualifications um, for being uh, a deacon. Uh, there are some other passages, for example, Acts 6, that people traditionally looked for uh, as uh, descriptive of what kind of people could serve as deacons. In Acts 6, uh, we have a, a situation that comes up. Uh, best thing is just read the account. It says, in those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the, G the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Uh, you know, if you put the whole thing together, uh, also in 1 Timothy, there's a sense in which there's a, there are widows that um, were in a very bad situation. You know, in, in that kind of a, a situation, it was the men that provided for the women. Uh, it was very unusual for a woman to be able to make enough money for her to support herself. 
And so she would rely on her husband and then in her later years on her sons uh, to take care of her. And meanwhile, she'd be busy uh, doing good works and other things to minister to the poor and needy, etc. But she wouldn't be making much money for that. So this was a very dis- desperate situation. Uh, widows found themselves in, in very difficult situations, especially if they had no family. And so in 1 Timothy, there's a list of those who are truly widows or widows indeed who had no family members uh, who could provide for them. And so these widows, uh, it says the Grecian Jews uh, were being overlooked. Their widows were being overlooked. So there's a somewhat of a racial issue here. Grecian Jews are Greek-speaking Jews, and they're not uh, perhaps seen as spiritually pure as the Hebraic-speaking uh, or Aramaic-speaking uh, Jews. And so there's a sense in which they're being, uh, they're being uh, shafted here. Uh, their, wi- their, their widows, sorry, are being overlooked. And so they complained about it. This is really the first indication of any problems in the early church. The first time that there's any, any disunity or disharmony is on this issue. And it's amazing what uh, ends up happening, how they address it. It says in verse 2, So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Now we shouldn't think that the apostles thought little of waiting on tables. That's not it. It's just that they had a calling to do. And if they diverted themselves from their calling of teaching and preaching the word of God and prayer, which they'll mention in a minute, um, to do this, it would take all their time. That's all they would do. This is a huge job. I mean, realize that in one day, 3,000 people were added to the number of the church. So, and, and by this time, maybe the number of men has grown to about 5,000 or more. So you, you're talking about thousands and thousands of people. And the administration of the church would have been amazingly time-consuming. This would be just one aspect of the administration, the uh, ministry to the, to the widows. But they said it just wouldn't be right for us to stop doing all of the ministry of the teaching of the Word of God in order to take care of this problem. And so it says, brothers, verse 3, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the, of the Spirit and wisdom, who will turn this responsibility over to them. So we should not imagine that they thought of this lightly. It wasn't important or whatever. They needed the best of the best. They needed men who are mature and wise and filled with the Holy Spirit. We will turn this responsibility over to them and give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. Uh, verse 5, this proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas from Antioch, a uh, convert to Judaism. And they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So here we see a, a very important thing just for our overall study. We're looking at church government. The problem is brought to the apostles to solve. The apostles delegate the problem uh, back to the congregation, but with a specific solution choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. The congregation chooses the seven, but then brings them back to the apostles to pray and lay their hands on them. There's such a beautiful rhythm here between the God-ordained leaders, the apostles, and the congregation. It goes back and forth. Do you see it? The congregation brings the problem to the apostles. The apostles propose a solution. The congregation chooses the seven men, and the apostles pray and lay their hands on them. Back and forth it goes. And to me, this is the way I think of church government as a balance between the God-ordained leaders and the congregation, back and forth. I hope you see it. Um, Also, perhaps you wouldn't notice this automatically, but I can tell you uh, that all seven were Greek-speaking men. And so they chose uh, men from among that sub-community of the church to address the problem and entrusted them with significant significant leadership. So I think they very beautifully got past that initial uh, difficulty and the church continued to grow and spread. Uh, so the problem was solved. Now, you may wonder, what does this have to do with deacons? The word actually is never used here in this passage. The verb form is to serve, etc., but the noun isn't. But traditionally, uh, most churches, Baptist churches, look on Acts 6 as up there with 1 Timothy 3, 8 through following, as explaining uh, how the deacons are chosen and what they are to do. Now, here's where I get to an important issue with deacons. Their functions are never clearly spelled out in the Bible. Who they are, what kind of people they should be is. But what they're supposed to do isn't. And so most Baptist churches have traditional rather than biblical answers for the job descriptions of deacons. And uh, that's appropriate because the best you can end up with here is Acts 6. And unless we have a bunch of Greek-speaking widows who aren't getting enough in the daily distribution of food, then we're kind of left high and dry even here. Yes? It does seem to suggest in chapter 6 that their functions are not primarily um, spiritual, if you will. Um, the apostles, by contrast, are going to be devoting themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. The deacons are not going to be. 
Right. And I think I think traditionally people have looked at that and represented that and said, okay, then deacons are going to look after physical, practical, daily ministries and not so much prayer in the ministry of the word. And I think that's where they get it. And there's some validity to it. Um, some people, as I say, based on Acts 6, say de- deacons are to look after servant ministries that address physical needs in the church so that the elders are free to do prayer and ministry of the word. So I think that's, that's where you get the function. But we don't have a specific job description laid out for us. Um, note, however, the noun deacon does not appear in, in that passage, although the uh, verb form does. Now, let's raise the question, and we touched on this a little bit last time, the issue of women deacons. All right. Some point to Phoebe, and I talked about this when I preached through Romans. Uh, Romans 16.1, I commend you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Centuria. Um, that's the NIV translation. RSV and other translations may give us something like this. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deaconess of the church at Centuria. The problem I had, and I talked about this when I preached on Romans 16, is if this all you have, it's not much. The word is actually a very common word, uh, the word servant. And there's actually a number of different Greek words that are translated servant. Doulos would be one. This is a different one, diakonos. But uh, as I noted in that sermon in Romans 16, Jesus himself is called the diakonos. And I don't think we look on G- Jesus as a deacon in the strict manner of the, of the sense, you know, that Jesus was the first deacon, that kind of thing. Um, it's just he's a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's, God's truth, it says in, in Romans 15.8. So if this is all you have, you don't have much. I actually think there's weightier arguments for women being permitted to be uh, deacons if the deacons are not understood as spiritual leaders or having authority or teaching ministry over men. Um, I don't know that they're ultimately compelling, but I think they are weightier. For example, uh, if you look at the passage in 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 12, which you have back on page 1, why don't you go ahead and look at that? Just go back one page. I want you to notice the structure of the passage. And there's a detail of translation that I want to bring out. But just so you see the structure. Beginning at verse 8, deacons likewise are to be men worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested. And then if there's nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. Okay, so you have 8 through 10, a description of deacons. Now, verse 11, you have this thing. In the same way, their wives, that's what NIV gives us, are to be women worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. So verse 11 deals with either their wives or women. Now, the Greek can can be translated either way. It could either be wives, and I don't think we'd we'd really have there. There's no possessive in in the Greek. So it's just wives, but it could be just women. You see what I'm saying? And the, the problem that, that I have as I look at the structure here, look at verse 12. A deacon must be the husband of one wife and manage his children his household well. So you're back to deacons again. Okay? So you've got kind of an A, B, A structure. Therefore, there's an indication that the whole section is about deacons. And then you're left with that question, should we translate it wives or just women, namely women deacons? And as I look at that, I have a question if it's just wives, if it's translated wives. The question I have is, why are there requirements for deacons' wives but not for elders' wives? Because there isn't a word spoken about elders' wives in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. Nothing at all. But here's this requirement in verse 11 that, you know, deacons, however, need to have really sharp wives, you know, these types, etc. It could be that Paul said just women in general, women of... of um, or wives of church leaders need to be this way. And oh, by the way, here's one more thing about deacons, but that doesn't flow too well. So that's one indication on one side. However, in verse 12, it says, a deacon must be the husband of but one wife. Literally, the, the, the Greek there is a one-woman man. And the, the word is man. It's, a, you know, it's definitely a masculine role. And so the argument goes back and forth. Um, I think arguing uh, biblically, there's not strong evidence either way. And therefore, some very conservative churches have women deacons, but elders, and the elders are all men, but the deacons are a mixture of men and women. And the role of deacon um, or deaconess is clearly spelled as a servant role that does not violate 1 Timothy 2, uh, which says, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. She must be silent, etc., which we need to recognize is right before this section. So if Paul actually is permitting women to be deacons, he certainly isn't going to do it in violation of the verses he just wrote a few moments before that. So those conservative churches that have a high respect for the word of God but also have women deacons simply say that there's no violation here at all. The women are just simply serving in servant-type roles. 
Others look at verse 12 and say, it says that you know, deacons are to be men. I don't know about this ABA structure thing that you're giving us here. Uh, I think a better translation the NIV gave us is their wives. And why Paul doesn't give um, requirements for elders' wives, who knows? You know, Paul is frequently going off in certain directions and writing. In Romans chapter 5, he begins a thought and never finishes it. So we should not require him to be, be exceptionally precise like a laser or scientific accuracy at every moment. But he's clearly requiring something for deacons' wives here, and we should just follow that. That's the, the way that they argue. Yes? He's pointing out to me in, in Titus, and only there's a charge for the children, our believers, and not open the charge of debauchery or insubordination. But you wouldn't right. say the children are have some special uh, special role, an elder role, like there's a child elder role or something like right. that. Right. Would, you, would you say that's parallel? Perhaps I haven't looked at it before, but I, I think you'd have to have to say that. In either case, you're really arguing from silence or trying to read between the lines, etc. I respect uh, conservative churches that make decisions either way on this. I just want to know what their reasoning is, etc. When we went through the whole women deacon thing here, we had to acknowledge, and we'll talk about this in a minute, that at this church, as in many Baptist churches, deacons had more than just a simply a servant role but they were taking leadership uh, positions and they were assisting the pastors to perform New Testament functions and all that. And so I was always careful. I tell you, when you're in a big church dispute, you want to be sure the ground under your feet is solid. And so I always had to be very careful on this issue. I said, now, as we presently understand deacons, I always said those kind of things. Made me, it made me look slippery and tricky and lawyer-like or whatever, not against lawyers or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Just kind of you know, looking for a loophole. But I didn't know what the future of our church was. I didn't know if we would come back and re- revisit the whole issue of deacons if they are simply servants, etc. And we may well do that this year. I don't know. Uh, but I would respect um, the view either way. Um, I think there are some traditional arguments against it, but I don't like having tradition under my feet. You know, um, it would take a while to change the culture of a Baptist church. You know, like my friend Mark Dever, who's pastor of a church up there in Capitol Hill, they have women deacons up there, and. This guy who went through the whole process, all the teaching, the whole thing, understood everything. He said, I never thought I'd see the day when we'd have women deacons here at this church, but now look at it. So even with all the teaching, you're still carrying the baggage of, you know, you're a liberal church or something like that, et cetera. Yes, go ahead. Well, um, regarding Romans 16.1, even if they don't officially called in officially meaning that she was a deacon of the church, the question would come up in my mind, well, was she fulfilling the same functions, playing the same role? I mean, uh, or or are there other instances in Scripture where women are doing the seen as doing the same kind of tasks that deacons? Well, I just don't know what they are. I mean, the only thing you've got is Acts six, and so therefore I really couldn't answer you. I just think we quickly run out of information about Phoebe. I mean, if she's all we've got, we don't have much. And if all it is is that word diakonos, you really aren't working with much there. So, and that's why in the end you just run out of biblical information on this topic. Um, I don't think you run out of biblical information on gender roles, though. I don't think that one runs out. So therefore, I think as long as those teachings are clearly established, then I think you have health in the church, and the rest of it is really up to that local church to discern. All right, well, let's move on now and talk about um, other offices and then um, uh, how church officers should be chosen. I'm on page three. Is the church free to establish other offices that are not mentioned in the New Testament? Specifically, this gets to the issue of committees and other such positions. Now, Mark... Dever said that committees are from the devil. Okay, now he's, that's just Mark. He's just uh, making a joke at that point. But I'm not entirely sure that he's not telling, you know, what he thinks is the truth, et cetera. Uh, I will say this. You're not going to find committees in the Bible anywhere, okay? And what's amazing is the, the strong role they have in leading many Baptist churches. You know, in other words, so many things then get delegated to the committees, and at that point you have issues. Uh, but is the church free to do that? Well, I think you would argue that you would want your polity, your church government, to line up with Scripture as best as you can. And if you've got committees that are making key decisions that would probably be best done by the elders, etc., I think then you've digressed from the New Testament norm. So um, if, if you're hearing me say that I'm against committees, then you're hearing me accurately. I think ultimately I'd like to see uh, the church led by elders, this particular church, and then uh, for them to delegate roles to people, if you want to call them committees, I don't know. that. Generally, elder-run churches don't call them committees. Um, but, yeah, I think the church has freedom at that point. Uh, it also deals with other functions like treasurer and moderator and all that. Does the church have the right to have a treasurer or a moderator or something? 
Yes, it does, okay? Uh, but it's not a very significant uh, issue there. It also deals with offices required by the state, such as trustees who sign legal documents. The church has the right to do those things as well. I didn't understand why you were against committees or marquees. What, what's the problem? Well, the problem is what role they play in polity. Basically, we're talking about elders leading the church and all that, and, and at that point, you've got you know, committees which are nowhere established in the New Testament. There's no pattern for them. And we're about to go through a various models. One of the models is the church board model, which is very much a business model. And there's no, there's no um, ground for it at all in the New Testament. So I guess for me, I would want to say, is the New Testament sufficient for church polity, government? I think it is. And since you don't see uh, committees at that point, I think you want to have elders and deacons. Uh, that's, that's what I would argue for, et cetera. All right, well, let's keep going. Uh, how should uh, church officers be chosen? Well, there are various patterns. There are two basic approaches uh, in church history, uh, selection by a high, higher authority and selection by a local congregation. Those are the two ways that officers are chosen. What would the higher authority be? Well, let's say in the Catholic Church, it would be the archbishop. The archbishop would choose your priest for you. All right, uh, same thing in Episcopal. Uh, the pope appoints cardinals and bishops, and the cardinals and bishops, they appoint priests. So the clear top-down hierarchy is a system of government. Um, the other alternative is congregationalism, in which the uh, leaders are, are chosen by the congregation itself. And there are varieties of forms of that as well. Now, Grudem and I would both make arguments for congregational polity in the selection of leaders. Grudem advocates that congregations should have an active role in selecting, or at least affirming, the elders, deacons, and the pastor. There are several New Testaments of church involvement in the selection of leaders. I've already mentioned this. Acts 6 has a clear dynamic of involvement between both congregation and apostles. I've already pointed that out. Who chose the deacons? Who chose the seven men? Stephen, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmen, Parmenus, and Nicholas from Antioch. Who chose those seven? Was it the apostles? No, it was the congregation that chose them. And so therefore, I think that's a strong argument for congregationalism at that point. They chose the actual people. Now, they brought them back to the elders just as they did with their money. You know how they bring their money and put it at the feet of the apostles and it was distributed as the apostles saw fit? So basically, there was an, a sense in which these seven, if you want to call them deacons, come and did their ministry under the authority of the apostles. But, and the, the apostles would show that by laying their hands on them and, and praying for them, etc. But uh, at any rate, I think it's a strong argument for congregationalism. There are other examples. In Acts 15.22, it says, Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, two men who were leaders among the brothers. So there, the phrase, with the whole church, gives you the indication that the congregation is involved in choosing leaders. 2 Corinthians 8, it says, And we, were sending along, we are sending along with him the brother who is praised by all the churches for his service to the gospel. What is more, he was chosen by the churches to accompany us as we carry the offering, which we administer in order to honor the Lord himself and to show our eagerness to help. The whole offering thing is a big issue for Paul. Uh, he's collecting money from Gentile churches to bring them back to the church, uh, the Jewish church in uh, Jerusalem or in Judea. And so he wants to be completely above board. I mean, realize you're talking about probably gold and silver coins, not paper money. So it's boxes of treasure and uh, it's dangerous, the travel, you know, on boats and ships. And so they would need a number of people there and people who would be trustworthy to be sure 100% of it got where it was supposed to go. And so he said, now here we've got this brother. We don't know his name, Second Corinthians 8, but he was chosen by the churches for this role. So again, congregationalism, the church uh, chose their leaders. Now, what about Paul appointing leaders? Uh, Acts 14.23, Paul and Barnabas, it says, appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. And again, Titus 1.5, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Now, Wayne Grudem says these verses do not eliminate church involvement and the word itself could simply mean install. But you see now why uh, Presbyterian and Episcopal and Catholic uh, you know, polities uh, point to these kind of verses and say, see, it's top down. The apostles, Paul and Barnabas appointed uh, leaders. They chose them and said, these are your leaders. And so that's why, you know, you have some amicable disagreements on church government like this. Yeah, go ahead, Sean. But apparently they were chosen from among the local community. Right. And not uh, flown in from halfway across the continent. Well, certainly not flown in, not in the first uh, generation. So, yeah, definitely not. 
Um, you know, it's, it's interesting because on the uh, non-local leadership, then you've got Paul and Barnabas who themselves were non-local. They'd be there for a while and then they would leave. Yeah, go ahead. Also, these were apostles doing the choosing, and there aren't any apostles around today. Yeah, at least one of them was, Paul, but then there's Barnabas. Um, but it's, it's a good point. Um, and so they would have what you're saying, perhaps suggesting more authority than anyone would, ha- would have these days. I'm just telling you, you can see now why the Presbyterians and others make their arguments for a top-down uh, choice, etc. If the entire congregation chooses leaders like elders, there is more accountability to the whole church, says Grudem. Uh, and I think that's true. So he's making arguments here um, for why congregational choice of leaders is appropriate. First Timothy 5, it says, Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. Those who sin are to be rebuked publicly so that the others may take warning. So basically, this has to do with sinning elders. Very serious issue. But he, he's saying he's giving both protection for the elders, but also a high level of accountability. The elder, if he sins, you're not even going to listen to anybody saying anything negative about an elder unless you have two or three witnesses. And why is that? Well, just the nature of the office. You know, it's amazing the scurrilous things that are said about church leaders. And I know very well that that totally fallacious accusations can torpedo a ministry as much as genuine ones can, you know, if the people believe it, etc. And so therefore... Uh, that there's some protection here for elders who might be the brunt of satanic attack and, and scurrilous rumors. So you don't even listen to it. Don't entertain an accusation against an elder unless it's supported by two or three witnesses. But if the elder has sinned, then he has to be dragged in front of the whole church and repent publicly. And that's because of his important role in the church. So you see that uh, the, the reason that I'm quoting this at this point is it shows congregational involvement with the elders. All right, the congregational involvement. He's going to be confessing his sin in front of the entire congregation. Now, another argument for congregationalism is that historically, false doctrine takes root with theologians and institutions first. Pastors and laymen who are walking with the Lord, uh, pastors second and laymen who are walking with the Lord and know their Bibles well, last. Thus, congregationalism tends to be more resilient against false doctrine than hierarchical top-down polities. In other words, what's happening is These seminary professors are trying to invent some new teaching that no one's ever thought of before. They're always doing this, especially like in the post-enlightenment Germany, uh, where you've got all of these people like Schleiermacher and Rischel and all these guys that are coming up with the next great paradigm that rocks the world, you know, and everything gets destroyed. And from then on, it's his paradigm that there's so much human pride in all this sort of stuff. And so they're looking for whole new ways to understand doctrines. And remember, my systematic theology professor, Roger Nicole, said, I'm not trying to rock you. I'm trying to establish you. All right? We're not trying to come up with some radical new way of looking at the Bible. But these professors frequently are, so they can make a name for themselves and sell their books and all that. So that's where the heresies tend to start with these kind of folks. If you have a top-down structure, then you can take the, this guy, this, this professor can take his trained pastors and force them into a local congregation and within a generation you have liberalism or heresy spread throughout the local churches whereas congregationalism tends to be more resistant to it now the people are able to say you know sniff a rat and say this is wrong you know because my bible says such and such etc it's just been true in church history congregational polities tend to be more resistant to liberalism and to false doctrine also government works best when it has the consent of those governed doesn't that make sense I mean, frankly, in the end, it's all going to be congregational anyway. I mean, you can get your top-down priest, but if, he, if the congregation isn't going to follow him, he's out. It, and everybody knows that. So in the end, basically every church ends up more or less congregational because the people will or they will not follow that leader. It's that simple. All right, Exodus 4 shows this. Uh, Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites, and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people, and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and seen their misery, they bowed down and worshiped. So there's the people together owning Moses as their leader as they see and hear uh, from him personally. And there's other examples, which I, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and skip. But basically, government works best when it has the consent of those governed. Now, let's talk about various uh, forms of church government. I have some cheesy-looking diagrams here. Um, I don't know if they're helpful to you. They, they moved around. It's amazing what these pictures do in Microsoft Word. So the one on page six isn't even in the right place. That's the Presbyterian graphic, and it's right next to an Episcopalian thing. So that's just off. But anyway, let's let's talk about these various forms. Let's start with the Episcopalian thing. What's that? 
They're trying to merge a whole new de denomination. I don't know how that's going to work, but anyway. Okay, so cheesy, cheesy diagram number one is see a little bishop with his hat on, okay? That, that guy in the top, he's the archbishop, like the archbishop of Canterbury or something like that. Um, he's, the, he's the head leader. He will assign bishops, and the bishops will assign priests, and the priests will govern local congregations. You see that top-down structure? So one to the next, to the those middle guys, those bald-looking guys in the middle, those are the priests. See that? And below them are the congregations. That's the top-down structure. All right, the archbishop has authority over many bishops, page 6. Bishops have authority over a diocese, so the group of all those churches under a bishop's authority. Each local parish is run by a rector, who's usually called a priest. Archbishops, bishops, and rectors are all priests, but the term is usually reserved for a local church rector. So the pastor of a local church in the Episcopalian system is called a priest. Uh, this is a top-down structure with authority flowing from the leader down and no authority flowing the other way. So if the congregation doesn't like the priest, there's not much they can do about it. All right? They just stop coming is what ends up happening. All right? But they can't vote in their own priest. They can't fire their own priest. They have no authority. Neither do they own the property, by the way. And so when the Episcopalian Church in America decides that bishops can be homosexuals and all that, and then you have congregations that don't want any part of that, there's not much they can do except start their own church. You know, just everybody vacate that building because they don't own the building. That's a whole top-down thing. They don't, own the, they don't have the authority to remove their priests and they don't own the property at which they worship. So there's nothing they can do. And thus, you know, again, heresy comes from the top down. They can force it on the congregations. And there's nothing those folks can do. Arguments for this system, generally not biblical arguments, since the role of archbishop is not found anywhere in the New Testament. Rather, defenders of this system draw their support from church history, saying that this is the logical extension of the systems initiated in the apostolic era. In other words, the best kind of traditionally, you move from apostles on to archbishops. That's what they're arguing. And what is this? This is a person uh, like Paul who can travel from community to community and have authority over local congregations. They're saying, well, once the apostles died, who could do that? Well, it was the archbishops. That's how they argue. But it's not a biblical role because you don't see that happening in the New Testament, mostly because it was the apostolic era the whole time the New Testament was being written, they would say. But at any rate, um, that's what happened. You had archbishops, uh, so they argue. Generally, adherents of the system advocate some form of apostolic succession. And a significant verse con uh, concerns the keys given to Peter. Matthew 16, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So here's Peter with his keys. And this is especially true of the Roman Catholic Church. The apostolic succession from Peter all the way down. And that's what they, they claim. And so there's some kind of an anointing that goes in the hands of the, of the apostle, and he puts it on to the next one, the next archbishop, the next uh, bishop of Rome. That's what the pope is right on down to the present day, apostolic succession. He's got the authority. Now, what about arguments against the system? Well, as we've said, the office of archbishop doesn't appear anywhere in the New Testament. There's never a single bishop in the New Testament, and this whole system stands or falls on linking this new office that's being invented with the authority that the apostles exercised. Yet even there, it should be noted that no one apostle had authority over any of the others but they all seem to function as equals. Key evidence is this parallel binding passage spoken to all the apostles, Matthew 18, 18. I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Well, that just got said to Peter two chapters before that, the binding and loosing. But this is plural, speaking to all of the apostles. They had the authority to bind and loose. And so therefore, we can't find that Peter had supreme authority over all the others. Uh, that argument will fall apart. There is no indication of apostolic succession anywhere in the New Testament. And by the way, you get a clear indication of this in um, Galatians chapter 2 when the apostle Paul, who's Johnny come lately as an apostle, as one untimely born, he says, just totally rebukes Peter in front of everybody because he had drawn back from eating with the uh, Gentile converts. And he said, I addressed him publicly because he was in the wrong. So I don't see much, uh, you know, of the Pope in Peter at that particular moment. Okay, they were really equals and he was doing wrong and therefore another apostle comes along and says so. So you really see, I think, a equal, an equal playing field that leads toward the polity that Grudem and I would advocate and that's the plurality of elders. Basically, you have God-ordained leaders that more or less are operating at the same level. 
hold each other accountable, help each other at weak times, make key decisions together. That's basically what you had, I think, even in the apostolic age, even back then. So there's no indication of apostolic succession anywhere in the New Testament. The church at Antioch, not the apostles in Jerusalem, laid hands on Barnabas and Saul and sent them on their mission. Timothy was ordained by a group of elders, not by the apostles. So you're really not going to see this strong role of, of apostolic succession in the New Testament. So the historical argument is not uh, persuasive uh, since it may be equally argued the New Testament system worked well in the first century. Yes, go ahead. Um, how is the office of archbishop, though really much different than the pastor of a megachurch, that, you know, you really don't know your pastor when you're in a, a church of four or 5,000 people. You right. basically get his pronouncements, you know, you hear me roll over the internet or whatever. It is just not very personal. How is right. this different than that? And why is the megachurch any more scriptural than this? Well, I, I think you could make an argument that the megachurch is scriptural from the uh, early church. Um, you had 3,000 people added in one day. Then how is this different than the megachurch? Well, I just I think the idea of an archbishop is it's a it's a leap to go from the apostolic age to this this role a a bishop archbishop that ha- then has the right in a top down way to assign. We don't we don't see that happening. Uh, the, that that link is is an, an argument made from history and not from the scripture. Concerning whether you know your pastor very well or not, well, yeah. <laughs> Do you all know me? I mean, what do you want to know? What do you know? Ask me any question. You know, after a while, it becomes difficult to be personally involved with folks. And it doesn't mean you're not biblical anymore. It just means you need to organize yourself better. And this is a question that we are constantly asking, which is how well we're set up for shepherding. People are constantly slipping through the cracks. I mean, it's, it's amazing. People are dynamic. Just because somebody was doing well five months ago doesn't mean they're doing well now. And uh, I'm sometimes not the first to know, <laughs> okay? You know, I just notice, like somebody says, they'll say a name to me, say, well, where's so-and-so? And it's like, ooh, I don't know. It's been a while. And I try to shorten that a while. And we have structures like Sunday school, home fellowships, the Deacon Family Ministry Plan, and all of you folks knowing each other and caring enough to say, hey, where's so-and-so? I haven't seen him in a few weeks. But that whole issue of really being close to the pastor and all that becomes more and more difficult as the church continues to grow. So, you know, I would like I would like to know members of the church better than I do. Um, it's gotten harder and harder as we've gone on here. So we're dealing with 400, 450 people right now. Um, now, there's some that would know better than I, you know, first names and all that kind of thing. Uh, I, I just rest assured in this. That I'll have eternity to get to know everybody in this church. Um, genuine believer in Christ. I look forward to that. Um, but I don't think that you can make a quick argument against the megachurch. I actually think that the weight of the biblical evidence is against you because they used to meet in Solomon's colonnade and get the teaching from the 12 apostles. So that actually tends toward the megachurch approach. But after that, you get all these house churches. I don't know any house that was big enough for 3,000 people. Okay, so I think it's just amazing how flexible the structures are in the New Testament. You can, you can have both. So, good question. Now, the Presbyterian cheesy graphic is on page 6, so I don't know what happened, how that floated to something. But I gave you a better structure here. I hope you got this sheet. This is the little boxes. That was intended to be actually stapled in the thing, but I didn't do it. I did it last time, but not this time. I forgot about it. So do you see it, the Presbyterian structure? The way this works is you've got, if you didn't get the sheet, I'll just try to hold it up, or you just have to listen. Each congregation selects their own elders. They're called the session, all right? Those elders... Uh, have a measure of spiritual authority over that congregation. From each of those sessions of elders, they choose some representatives that go to the presbytery, which organizes numbers of Presbyterian churches in a certain region. And all of those make important decisions for the local congregations uh, that are appropriate for the presbytery to make. In other words, there's some decisions that are appropriate for the session to make for their own local congregation. But then the presbytery would make uh, larger decisions, doctrinal decisions or church discipline decisions or other type things or policy decisions at a higher level. And then at the highest level, you get representatives from each of the presbyteries that are going to the general assembly. So if you have a a case, a doctrinal case, a church discipline case, etc., you can argue just like the Supreme Court, go up to the highest level. And these folks have a real authority over the local church in those matters. And what they say is final. 
It's interesting to read the history of liberalism in the Presbyterian church and how it would go to the highest level, General Assembly, and they'd discuss things and they'd come up with a decision and then it would come on down. And that's where you got uh, the split between the PCUSA and the PCA because they had no final recourse. The decision had been made by the General Assembly that they were going to embrace what I call liberal doctrine, etc. And so J. Gresham, Machen, and others broke off and started their own Presbyterian denomination. They couldn't do anything else. So this is a balance between congregationalism and the top-down art, you know, Episcopal-type system. Um, a, a mixture of the two, where you have local congregations choosing their own elders, but then they, there's a feedback loop back down where the, the Presbytery and the General Assembly has authority over local congregations in certain matters. All right, so I've described all that on page 7. Uh, arguments in favor of this system. Uh, those who have wisdom and gifts for eldership should be called upon to use their wisdom to govern more than one local congregation. I mean, if they've got the talent, why not give them authority over lots of churches? That's what they're saying. Uh, a national or even worldwide government of the church shows the unity of the body of Christ is another argument. Such a system is able to prevent an individual congregation from falling into doctrinal error more effectively than any voluntary association of churches. For example, you know that the Southern Baptist in North Carolina censured a church because it was willingly accepting homosexuals as such, not urging them to repent, but just saying that you must, you know, just saying you're fine as you are, etc. The, the Baptists basically would not allow this congregation to participate with them. They did the best they could to church discipline, but they couldn't do anything else. Because Baptist uh, churches are congregationally led, and there's no top-down structure whatsoever. All we can do is say, we just don't want to play with you anymore. We don't want your money. We don't want you coming to our meetings, etc. That's all they can do. A Presbyterian church, however, can require certain things of local congregations, which Baptists or congregational churches can't. Finally, adherents of the system generally uh, point to Acts 15, where you have, it seems, representatives from many local churches coming together to solve a difficult doctrinal issue, namely circumcision. All right. Arguments against the system. Well, first of all, nowhere in the New Testament are there examples of elders having authority over more than one local church. The pattern is rather that elders are appointed in local churches and have authority only over that local church. Secondly, Acts 15 supports more, than, more the authority of the apostles over other local churches than that of elders. Also, Acts 15.22 implies that the local church of Jerusalem had a say in the final decision, implying rule of one local congregation over, over other congregations by the same logic. And that's not right. In other words, that the church of Jerusalem was more authoritative than any other church because they made this decision that all the other churches should obey them. So obviously that's not what's going on in Acts 15. The system can result in extensive and con uh, consistent litigation of church matters with final decisions rendered by those who have no personal knowledge of the people involved. They're miles away. They live in another state. They don't even know you at all. They get the case. You're going to have church lawyers that are arguing things and making cases. It's very, very removed at that point from the local church. Presbyterian churches have not proven to be resistant to false doctrine, just as I mentioned, pressured down from above. This system actually tends to hasten that kind of corruption. A better picture of the unity of the church would be to have representative laymen, not just elders, united for the purpose of mission as Baptists do. Okay? So now we have two structures that we've looked at, the Episcopalian structure and the Presbyterian structure. The third is congregational. Now, congregational is a variety of denominations that follow it. Up in New England, where I'm from, congregational churches were their own denomination, like the four C's, that kind of thing. Um, or UCC, United Con Congregational Churches, etc. So there are different denominations of congregational churches up there. Baptists are congregational in their polity. And what it means basically is... Um, yeah, all right, hang on a second. Let me just describe what a congregational church is. The authority to make church decisions rest at the human level with that congregation and nowhere else. That's what congregationalism is. The right to buy or sell property, the right to call or dismiss pastors, the right to change your constitution, the right to do any of those things lies with the local church body, with the members of that church body and with no one, no one else. So there's no body that can force us to accept a Baptist statement of faith, for example, there's a lot of misunderstanding about this. When the Baptist faith and message was changed in 2001, there was all this hue and cry about that. All it is is the Southern Baptist Convention, the messengers said, this, we think this is a good document. We commend it for your consideration. That's about the best they could do. They could not make any local church accept it, which you notice our church hasn't. And why? Because we haven't made it an issue. Right now we're using the 1963 Baptist faith and message. 
We should get after it at some point, I think. Um, but it's obviously not been a major point of issue for us. And no one's calling me saying, you bad pastor, you. That was back in 2001. Nobody's called me about it at all. They don't know what we're doing. Maybe if they knew, then they'd give me a call and say, what's up with you? When are you going to change your statement of faith to the 2001 Baptist faith message? But uh, at any rate, they don't have that authority. Nobody can make us change our statement of faith. Nobody can make us sell 414 Cleveland Street. Nobody from the outside can make uh, me no longer be pastor here or call some other person they'd rather have pastor here, etc. They can't make us believe certain doctrines that we don't hold to, etc. That's what congregationalism is. At the human level, humanly speaking, the authority for decisions of the church lies with the members of this church. Okay? By the way, you see the importance then of regenerate church membership. That the members who make those decisions be born again is important. Do you see that? I hope you do. Because if the members aren't born again, they'll make bad decisions. <laughs> they'll call wrong people to be pastors. They'll veer off doctrinally and, and do things that are not biblical. They'll say things like I have heard saying, I don't care what the Apostle Paul thinks about this. I believe such and such. When you start having that, you've got big problems. When you have enough people like that, the church has gone down the tubes. So regenerate church membership is hugely important for a congregational church. Do you all understand that? Listen, I know that polity is not the most exciting thing. I need to know that you're hearing me now on this, okay? Not if you're hearing me. Yes, congregational polity is dependent on regenerate church membership that the members be born again. And therefore, I consider it one of my number one most important roles as a pastor to stand someone as a gatekeeper over those that want to join us as members and be sure that they're born again. I think that's very important. I, I want to ask them questions and be sure that they actually have come to faith in Christ. And I do the best we can. I do the best I can with that. You can't read people's hearts. But I also believe in church discipline. If they start living like pagans, they ought not to be members of this church anymore. And so we're very clear about that during the membership process. Does that make sense? Okay, let's move on. All right, um, there are different types of congregational approaches. This first one is the single elder or single pastor approach. This actually represents a good majority of Southern Baptist churches. Okay, so there you have the pastor. And below him, you have the deacon board. And below that, the congregation. But uh, because it's congregational, notice there are arrows going up from the congregation, both to the pastor and the deacons. The congregation has the authority to remove a pastor. The congregation has the authority to remove deacons. But the single pastor is basically the human leader of the church. And this is the way it is frequently in many smaller Baptist churches that don't have enough money to have multiple staff, etc. cetera. Uh, most Baptist churches are small in the U.S. And so this is a very common model. Arguments in favor of this, uh, many of them coming from A.H. Strong, who wrote A Systematic Theology. He said, first of all, the New Testament does not require a plurality of elders. Rather, the pattern of plural elders seen at the time was a reflection of the size of the churches. In other words, just as we mentioned uh, some time ago, some of these churches were huge, like the church at Antioch or the church at Jerusalem. These are big churches. And so, therefore, they had to have a plurality of elders. The key issue here is the governing authority of the office of the elders possessed only by the professional pastor or pastors of the church and not shared by any lay person of the church. In other words, only if you're a professional, you know, with a certificate up on the wall, can you be a leader in the church. And that's a problem. You see, at that point, I'm thinking, is there not a role for lay leaders of the church to have authority to make key decisions? And for me, the answer to that question is, yes, there's a role. And second of all, what's the best biblical name for those people? seems to me to be elder. All right, right now they're called deacons in this church. Okay, but to me, I think the best biblical name for that is elder, etc. James was clearly to Strong, the leader of the church at Jerusalem. He sees things in James that others don't necessarily see, but he thinks that James was the key pastor in the church in Jerusalem. So he finds uh, that in James. H. Strong also notes that some passages have bishop in the singular, but deacons in the plural, so that hints at this structure. Uh, he also argues from Revelation 2 and 3, to the angel of the church at Ephesus, write such and such. You know, he thinks, well, that must be the pastor, right? And it may well be, but that's kind of shaky ground. All it says is to the angel of the church at Ephesus, right? It's especially shaky when you consider the church at Ephesus because in Acts 20, they had a plurality of elders, right? So, so much for that argument. I mean, sometimes you just need to take the next step and read, read between the lines, okay? The church at Ephesus had a plurality of elders. We get that from Acts chapter 20. 
So if what you're going to, I mean, that was the first letter to the churches in Revelation, the seven letters to the angel of the church at Ephesus, right? Such and such and such and such. They had a plurality of elders. So it's not really a good argument there. Grudem's response to strong seems inconsistent. Well, I'll just skip that one. I didn't understand it. I typed it, but I don't get it. So just skip it. If you ask me what it means, I'll say, I don't know. I'll say, why'd you type it? I don't know. Read Grudem's, Grudem's thing, see if you can figure it out. I, didn't, I couldn't understand it. All right, let's move on. Um, I think number two, however, is weighty. And that is, it's unwise to ignore such a widespread and consistent pattern of plural elders clearly displayed in the New Testament. It's actually not hard to show the plurality of elders in these local churches. I mean, they were there many, 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 uh, you know, the reason I left you at Crete was that you had to appoint elders in every town, elders plural in every town. It's there again and again. All right. Um, all right. I, I want to skip all this in the interest of time and get to some other uh, patterns. Another pattern, middle of page 10, is that the pastor then becomes kind of like a member of the deacon board. So there the deacons function somewhat as elders, and the pastor is one of them, although he's not a deacon, but he shares authority and power with other deacons, and, help, and they help him make decisions. We, we kind of have moved somewhat in that direction in our church, but to me it's just a transitional state, okay? Because I'm advocating that in 2007 we go to a plurality of elders in this church. Okay, that's what I'd like to see happen here. Um, the problem with this isn't so much that there's something wrong with this. It's that, hang on. Yeah, uh, uh, number seven, single elder plus deconstruction can morph into a plural elder structure. The problem with this is it does not use the biblical terminology for leadership. Because deacons aren't generally seen to be leaders in the New Testament. So why have this kind of structure? It's not the best structure. To me, it's just a transitional state. All right, plural local elders is the one that Wayne Grudem advocates and I also advocate. So what do you have there? Well, there you have a group of elders, E-E-E, E stands for elders, a bunch of elders, not D-D-D, D stands for deacons. You'd have a group of elders and one of those elders is the senior pastor, okay? Um, the key idea there is that the elders govern the church and have authority to rule. They have the authority to make decisions on behalf of the church. The church has the authority to remove elders if they're not doing their job. But the elders have authority to make decisions at a particular level uh, for, on behalf of the church, etc. Also, the elders are of equal authority one to another. So that it's not that the senior pastor has more authority than any of the other elders. The elders try to work in concert with one another, listening to each other and through prayer and seeking of consensus make their decisions in that way. All right? The senior pastor on page 11 is one of the elders, but will probably have the greatest responsibility for teaching and preaching. He may also assume a role as chairman of the elders, much as James assumed a facilitating role in the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15. He probably will derive all or most of his income from this work. And finally, he may have a wide range of authority to make decisions throughout the week and authority seem to be delegated uh, to him by the elders as a whole. So how does this work? Basically, a senior pastor is one of a group of elders the elders uh, could be, and generally in, in many churches, more than half of the elders are lay elders, not professional, not, not called pastors, that kind of thing, but they're lay leaders in the church who have other jobs, other responsibilities, who are not going to be there day by day to help run the church. So they'll entrust some of those day-to-day -day functions to the senior pastor, etc., but he does his ministry under the authority of the elders. And uh, that way he represents them in the decisions he makes throughout the week, etc., now, what are advantages of the system? Well, first of all, the pastor does not have authority on his own over the congregation, but rather that authority belongs collectively to the elders as a whole. This protects the pastor from the corruption of too much authority. You know how they say power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely? Well, that is absolutely untrue when it comes to God. Okay, He has all power and it's not corrupted him in millennia and it never will. But when it comes to sinners, it tends to be true. In other words, it can go to your head to have too much authority, too much power. And so therefore, it's good to have checks and balances. All right? But it's not just a matter of the corruption of the pastor. It's also the matter of the exhaustion of the pastor. Pastor, If he has so much responsibility, he's got all these decisions that have to be made, so much devolves around him, he's going to end up a monstrous bottleneck to the progress of the church. His limited abilities in certain areas, if he's not good at administration, he's not a good vision caster, he's, you know, you're going to have limits at that point. And so um, the burden of too much responsibility and along with that comes the attendant criticism that comes when he isn't doing a great job in certain areas. 
that senior pastor has to stand up and take all that criticism, etc. Whereas he's more protected from all that with a plurality of elders. This is a decision the elders have come to. It's not just one individual who's come to it, etc. Uh, protects the pastor from making mistakes due to blind spots. And it causes him to seek godly counsel and to seek accountability from other men who will hold him accountable and help him to keep growing as a believer. So therefore, I think for all of these reasons and many others, this is a beneficial or desirable system, etc. There are checks and balances generally to the elder plurality of elders. For example, generally elders run a certain length of time, like three years or something like that, and then they rotate off, and they're off for a year, and they're subject to elections. The congregation elects the elders. Uh, they're not, it's not a self-perpetuating board, uh, etc., but it could be that only candidates approved by the existing elders are presented to the congregation, etc. Those things are done in local churches as well. Also, some large decisions may be retained by the congregation, uh, such as the um, buying and selling of property, the approval of the annual budget, the hiring and firing of pastors, and, of course, church discipline. These things tend to be done just by the congregation. Okay, So the elders wouldn't decide to sell 414 Cleveland Street or to fire this person or that person. That would be done by the congregation. All right. Uh, Note the specification, by the way, plural, local elders. That's as opposed to the Presbyterian system in which there's authority given to people who don't even know you, who are in some other state somewhere. These are all folks that go right to this church, who attend here every week, who are involved, etc. Another uh, possibility for church leadership is the corporate board approach. So there you have the church board over the pastor who's over the congregation. Uh, The general mentality here is the you work for us approach. Basically, the the church hires the church board and the church board hires the pastor and he's basically an employee of the church board. What's the problem here? Well, many. (laughs) It's an abomination, (laughs) says Tom Gears. I probably couldn't agree more. Um, at that point, he, how can the pastor have any kind of spiritual authority at all if he's just a hired employee at that point? Um, and there's absolutely no New Testament support for this approach. The only reason that people do it is that it works in the business world. I think it should be called the HMO model. The HMO model? Okay. <laughs> there you go. Uh, another one is pure democracy. So imagine a box that just says congregation and nothing else. Boy, won't that be fun. You guys are in on every decision, every single, every decision. We're going to have a church conference. As a matter of fact, I think we ought never leave church conference. I think we ought to just live in church conference. Bring your sleeping bags. Bring plenty to eat. Plenty of diapers for the kids, okay? Because we'll be here making, huh? Let's discuss it right now. What do you say? All in favor? I mean, can you imagine um, the the uh, tediousness of pure democracy and how inefficient it is. It really is, you know. And then there's my, my favorite in all of this, no government but the Holy Spirit. Now, that sounds pious, doesn't it? Doesn't that sound good? We all, not, not only is it pure democracy at that point, we all kind of bow our heads in prayer. And then as the Spirit leads, then we make decisions, etc. And it's based on the piety of certain charismatic leaders who tend to hear God speak better than others, etc. So... That's not looking too convincing to some of you either. Um, I don't think there's much of a support for these. Elders and deacons are mentioned in Philippians 1.1 and other places. These are God-ordained roles. Okay, any questions? Yes. I would ask, what role do you think Timothy was playing as he was appointing elders in other towns? And is there a role currently in our churches for that person? Well, I think I need to do more work on the word appoint. Uh, Grudem said it could mean just install. And I think there you're talking about like missionaries that are doing church planning in China. They need to identify godly men who can lead that church and then they can go on and go some other place and continue with their trailblazing church planning ministry. They just need a church to start and be strong enough so that they can leave. So I guess that would be the best parallel would be trailblazing church planning uh, missionaries working among unreached people groups. And their joy would be to plant 20 churches in their lives. And in each of those churches, they would, they would have elders now, the, obviously, they're going to look to this missionary to say, well, what kind of men are we looking for? And, and he will help, the missionary will help select those elders. Etc. Yeah, Susan. In Galatians um, 2.9, when Paul is talking about uh, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be the pillars, right. 
Um, so anyway, I'm, I'm curious about that. I will Pillars? Yeah. Is that a new office? You can be a well, pillar. I guess I was, uh, <laughs> Paul was sort of tongue-in-cheek there. Uh, I think he is. He's saying what they, he goes on to say, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God is not judged by external appearance. And so he actually kind of minimizes all that. Um, I think what he's doing there is he's putting these human leaders in their place. You know, even these pillars are just human beings. They're just leaders. But I think we see the wisdom of God and how he raises up human beings to lead and how he causes us to take care and be concerned and not just be, in John 10, hired hands who care nothing for the sheep but actually brothers who care a great deal for the sheep. Under shepherds, yes. Um, refer to the part where it talks about it's a good thing to aspire to be an overseer and right. uh, being grateful for the young men in this room. Do you have suggestions for preparation for this yeah. office? Since absolutely. There's a lack of prepared men. Right, absolutely. Um, first of all, recognize it is a good thing to desire to be an elder. So if you're a young man, you should say, well, let me find out what the, what the character traits are of an elder and let me begin to grow in those areas. Secondly, it's a good thing for local churches to help young men become elders. And so one of the things I desire to do is start training future elders, perhaps even during the Acts slot, you know, maybe some key folks that are ready and maybe in the future would be elders or, you know, church leaders, etc., and do some active discipleship with them as Jesus did with the Twelve. Because I think it's a scandal for a local church to be around for 160 years and not have good, solid young men that are in the process of becoming elders. So I think that the church needs to look after it. So the young men should yearn for it and aspire to it and read the Bible to find out what they need to be and find good role models and imitate them. The local church should have structures for that imitation and for that growth. Let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for this time tonight that we've had. We thank you for each of the people here and for... The topic, Lord, it may not be the most thrilling topic in theology, but it's very useful and very important for our church. God, I pray specifically you would guide us here at this church uh, to see if we should be changing our polity and moving away from the present situation of, of pastors and deacons, and, and et cetera, but moving um, to a plurality of elders. Um, that would be a big change for our church, and I just pray that you would guide us and give us wisdom in this matter in 2007. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.